Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, on this first Sunday of 2021, we have mixed emotions, don't we? I mean, first of all, we're glad 2020 is behind us. It was a tough year. I was watching the first sermon I preached from 2020. I haven't seen it since I preached it, I guess. And I was watching it. It was on YouTube. And I was preaching about the upcoming year. And I said, I think 2020 is going to be a tough year. I had no idea what I was talking about, did I? (laughs) It was a hard year. But as I say, we have mixed emotions. I mean, we're excited about going into a new year, but the issue that we are faced with is all the problems from 2020 are still here. You know, with the calendar turned over, but all the problems are still with us. In fact, I'll be honest. I mean, I, you would hold me accountable to be honest with you with a series like Look Up to, to say that I've never remembered or I can't remember a year with such a depressing landscape as 2021 lies before us. I mean, we still have the coronavirus. The numbers are worse than ever. It is a serious virus. It's contagious. A lot of people are, are, are very sick with it. And yet, on the other hand, we have the shutdown. And the, both of those things do great damage. And there's virtue signaling on both sides. But at the end of the day, people who are honest step back from that and say, the coronavirus is a terrible problem. We don't know what to do about it. On the other hand, the shutdown is unacceptable because it's destroying lives and destroying careers, and it's killing people too. I can tell you that from the suicides that I've been, the caskets I've been beside this year, and people who've put off health decisions because of the shutdown. So yeah, it's, it's a troubling situation. And on top of that, our nation is polarized. I don't think I've ever seen a time when so many people were so angry. I know this is painting with a broad brush, but it's like 2016 made half the country angry and 2020 has made the other half angry and now just about everybody is angry. It's, a, it's an angry culture. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to pick at our leaders, but when I look at Washington, our leadership up there is, is terrifyingly weak. That's one of the things that troubles me, is we have very weak leadership. I was watching on YouTube, I love to watch old news clips, and I was watching an interview with Ronald Reagan and Bobby Kennedy, and they were being asked questions by, by young, young people around the world, and most of the questions were, were almost hostile to both Bobby Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. Now, For those of you who know history, you know Ronald Reagan was a conservative Republican and Bobby Kennedy was a liberal Democrat. I I was amazed at a couple of things just watching that hour-long interview. I was amazed at how intelligent the conversation was. I was amazed at how gracious both Bobby Kennedy and Ronald Reagan were. I was amazed that they agreed on about 70% of things. And when they disagreed, they didn't call each other names. They just talked about the nuances of difference that they disagreed on. And I couldn't help but look at that interview, which was done probably about 1967, and I thought, what's happened, to our, what's happened to our dialogue in America? It's so toxic. It's so poison. 
And whether you're on the left side of the spectrum or the right side of the spectrum, surely we have to say something is really wrong with our nation. Smart people say, what is this anger going to do to us? Now, fools cannot look at the future, and, and they can go on and do things without consideration. But smart people, according to the book of Proverbs, look down the road. And I think wherever you are on the political spectrum, you've got to look at the anger that's in our culture today and say to yourself, this is not going to end well. There's a verse in the Bible that I think about a lot when I think about America in 2021. It's a verse about these days that we live in. The Bible says in Isaiah 3, I will make toddlers their rulers. Hmm. Listen to that. I will make toddlers their rulers. Do you ever hear some of the dialogue? For all of you who are parents of toddlers, doesn't it sound similar? And yet the Bible said that. The Bible says there, there is a time when a culture can get so wicked that God said toddlers will be their rulers. People will oppress each other, neighbor against neighbor. Young people will insult their elders and vulgar people will sneer at the honorable. And it's not just in the United States, it's global. All of these issues that we have are global and they're prophetic overtones and I've talked about that before and God willing, I'll talk about it again. But let's face it. When we look around at our world in 2021, it, it doesn't look good when we look around. But maybe that's the problem. Is it possible that looking around is looking in the wrong place? In the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a prepositional phrase that occurs often throughout the book. And you won't find it really in just about any other book of the Bible. Definitely not, not as you see it in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the expression under the sun. Have you ever been reading through the Bible and you come to Ecclesiastes and you just keep seeing over and over how that the expression under the sun is there? And it's kind of like, what is that about? There's a very good, very good reason for that. In Solomon's day, there was a classification of literature that practically every refined culture had. It was called wisdom literature. And the elites, the intelligentsia of that culture would sit around and they would observe life and then they would compile their observations and they would write literature. I mean, the Greeks took it to a whole nother level, which is why we have a lot of the Greek philosophers. It's called wisdom literature. It was the idea that we're going to observe, we're going to analyze, and then we're going to come up with conclusions and present those. And the expression under the sun was used commonly because... Well, what are you going to observe? You're going to observe life before you. Now, God allowed Solomon to write some wisdom literature. And by the way, it is a depressing book. I think I taught through Ecclesiastes back in 2005 in a series uh, called Arcade. I don't even know if it's still available or not. But I remember when I preached through it, I found it telling, but I also found it depressing. I'm always also noticing that whenever, an, you know, there's a, a funeral for a, a non-theist or a funeral for someone who's a complete secularist, oftentimes they'll read out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's because Ecclesiastes is God allowing a writer to talk about what the world looks like when all we do is look around under the sun. In other words, we don't get God's vantage point. So what did Solomon say about life looking at the world under the sun. And by the way, Solomon was the richest guy that ever lived. If you read Ecclesiastes, he tried everything that he could find. He tried everything he could to find meaning and satisfaction. He tried sex. He had a thousand women in his life. That's a lot. That's 999 too many. <laughs> he tried getting 
high, he tried drinking, he tried projects. He, you know, it's like he, he, he tried every channel on cable television, HGTV, you know. He tried everything he could to make himself happy. And, and he would say, I had more than anybody else. I did anything I wanted to do. I was completely unrestrained. So what was his conclusion about life as he looked around? Here we go. Ecclesiastes 1.14. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, really, it's all meaningless, like chasing the wind. And then he gives a couple of reasons. He said, what's wrong can't be made right, and what's missing can't be recovered. I don't know how many of you watch the news or read the news or whatever, but if you watch the news at all, you're going to come up with those two conclusions. Number one, what's wrong can't be fixed, and what's missing can't be found. And Solomon said, that was my perspective, looking around, looking under the sun, it's all meaningless. In verse 17, he said, I came to hate life because everything done under the sun is so troubling. I don't know if this is emphasized on the screens behind you, but it is in my notes because the word troubling there is the Hebrew word for painful. It's the word for hurt. And basically, Solomon said, when I looked around and I looked at the world and I saw everything that was going on, Solomon said, it just hurt so bad. And who's here to give witness to that today? I mean, if we look around in 2021, it hurts to look around. But whenever I read that book, Ecclesiastes, I'm reminded that God never told us to find our answers under the sun. God told us to look above the sun. Solomon was looking in the wrong place. And that's why we're starting 2021, as painful as it may be right now, we're starting 2021 with a new view. It's all about looking up, and every week in January, we're going to take a verse of scripture from the Bible that talks to us about why we should get a new view and look up. Hey, we're not the first generation to live in bad times, and through the ages, God has had to remind his people that it's important to look up. So today, we're going to start off with one of my favorite look-ups in the Bible. It's in the book of Joshua. For those of you who like to study your Bible, you already have a time frame for this. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Let's read it. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he, here's our words, looked up. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. Then Joshua fell down face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Well, somebody can say, well, Mark, I read that with you. I don't see what you're so excited about. Okay, let's start with this. You and I are standing on the threshold of this new year, and we probably have way more in common with Joshua than we can imagine. And I'll, I'll list those similarities in just a moment. But so that they'll make sense, let me give you a little historical background. Joshua, he was born in Egypt. He was born a slave. The Jewish people had gone to Egypt when Joseph had been ruler and for a while, they were cherished people, but they began to proliferate, and, and 70 people became three and a half million. And one day, the Pharaoh, who could not remember why the Jews were in his land, looked around, and he said, if I don't do something to oppress these people, there are going to be more of them than, than there are of us. And so the Egyptian Pharaoh turned the Jewish people into slaves. Joshua was born in that time period. He was born a slave. Now, when Joshua was a kid, God raised up a leader, one of the world's greatest leaders, maybe outside of Jesus, the world's greatest leader. God raised up a leader to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt into the promised land. This guy's name was Moses. 
Moses had grown up in the palace. He was the adopted son of the Pharaoh. And then he tried to deliver the Jews on his own, and he caused more trouble than he fixed. And he wound up having to be a fugitive in the desert for 40 years. But while he was in the desert one day, keeping sheep, he walked past a bush that was burning, but it wouldn't be consumed. And Moses stopped to see what was going on. And when he stopped, God talked to him out of the burning bush and called him and said, Moses, you're going to be the leader to lead my people. And from that moment on, God started doing miracles. There were 10 plagues, you know. Moses went to see Pharaoh and said, God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is your God? So God gave him 10 business cards called plagues. And when that last one hit, Pharaoh said, go, get out of here. So here is Moses, and if you've ever watched the movies with Moses and the Israelites, it looks like there are a few hundred people. There were somewhere between two and a half and three and a half million of them. And they get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh has changed his mind. He's chasing them all down to kill them. They get to the Red Sea. They can't get across, and then God does the miracle. You know, he opens the Red Sea, and boom, there we go. And the Israelites are off on their way to Canaan under the leadership of Moses. Why does this matter since we're talking about Joshua? When Joshua was a very young man, probably still in his teens, he got the assignment of being Moses' aid. If you've ever been in the military, you know how important it is for a great leader to have an aid that, that, that he or she can trust. So Joshua becomes Moses' aide de camp. And it was great. Everything was cool. He got to hang with Moses. I mean, those early days of, of, of the Israelites going through the wilderness there were cool moments. By the way, could I just make a little, and I know I'm, 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 I'm trapped in history right now, but it's important for us to understand who Joshua is so all this will make sense to us. How long did it take the Israelites to get to Canaan? Over 40 years. How long should it have taken? 11 months. That sounds like there's a problem in there somewhere, and there was. Life went crazy for Joshua at a particular moment. Moses and the Israelites get right up to the edge of the promised land. And the people are a little nervous about going into the promised land. They come to Moses and they say, well, we, want, we, we need to go check this. We know that God has said this is a good land, but we need to go check it out and make sure it's okay. So Moses said, all right. And he sent a, a spy from each of the 12 tribes, 12 spies going into the land. And they go over to the land, they come back, and they give their report. And 10 of the 12 spies said, we cannot do this thing. I don't care what God said. We got over there, we looked like grasshoppers, those people. They were big, tall giants on top of that. They had these big cities, and they had these massive walls, file that away. And there's no way we can do this. Two spies came back and said, God said we can do this. Let's do this thing. They were Caleb and Joshua. Now, you would normally think that if, if two people came back with Joshua and Caleb's enthusiasm, that the people would have said, okay, I guess we can do it. But instead, they wanted to kill Joshua and Caleb. And finally, God said, enough. God said, if you're, if you're, if you're going to choke at a moment of destiny, if you're afraid to take your destiny, God is saying, you're just going to go in circles until this old generation dies off. And this is interesting to me. The old generation said, we don't want to go over there because we're scared that our children will suffer. And God said, all right. You bunch of chokers, I'll let you die here in the wilderness, and I'll take those children that you're worried about, and I'm going to grow them up, and I'm going to go over to the land with them. That's why I love, I love kids' ministry. I love how New Spring is about young people. I'm always praying, God, raise up a generation of courageous young women. God, raise up a generation of courageous young men who will stand and stare in the face of tyranny and do the right thing. And God said, that's what I'm going to do, with two exceptions. God said, 
Joshua and Caleb are going to get to go. So after all these years, I mean, 38 plus years pass, and they're in position now to finally go into Canaan. And Joshua and Caleb, they've been talking about this for all these years. And they've, been, I mean, they've spent 38 years being funeral directors. It takes a long time to punch holes in the desert to bury several million people. And Joshua and Caleb are like, okay, this is the moment we're about to go. And then they get a gut punch. Moses dies. And now here they are. I mean, they're right on the brink again, and now their leader has died. I mean, Moses is the only leader the people have known. He's the only leader that Joshua knew. Are they going to be forever stuck out in the desert? And the headline read, they almost made it. And that's when the book of Joshua opens. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, God, God comes to Joshua and says, Moses, my servant, is dead. If I'm Joshua, I'm like, yeah, I know that. And then God really blows his mind. Therefore, the time has come for you. The time has come for you to lead these people into the land that I'm giving them. It's funny how you'll probably hear that, that time has come for you part. I mean, a lot of us are going to hear that and say, wow, that's really cool. It's Joshua's promotion and and his his time has finally come. (laughs) I'm guessing there are a few of you men and women who've had to be a successor to a very successful leader. I have. You hear that very differently. If you're having to follow a very successful leader into an impossible situation and and the message comes to you, the time has come for you, all you hear is, I'm on the spot now. I'm responsible. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And Joshua had to be wondering, how am I going to be Moses? How am, I, how am I going to be the commander of the Lord's army? I mean, if Moses, one of the greatest leaders in world history, if he couldn't pull this thing off, how am I going, how am I, I going to do that? All right. Now we're ready to see how much you and I and Joshua have in common as we stare at 2021. Let me give you about four or five things. Here's the first one. He's got to find a solution for a problem that's just about beating everybody else. To get into Canaan, they have to cross Jordan. That's a, it's a river. I mean, if you know geography and you know the region, they're, they're now going east to west. They're circling back around, and they've got to cross the Jordan River. And God does a miracle and gets them across the Jordan River, but now it almost puts Joshua in more trouble. He can't retreat to the security of the wilderness, and ahead is the city Jericho, which is the big, bad, monster city. I mean, like right up front, they get the biggest test of all. Nobody had ever been able to beat the people of Jericho. The people of Jericho were rich, they were wicked, they were smug, and it all had to do with walls. Some of you grew up in church and you remember Bible stories about Joshua and the walls of Jericho, or even if you grew up with old music, you know there was a song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Well, let me give you a little bit of the science behind those walls. These walls were like they were structured on a three-tiered plan. They started with an earthen embankment, which ran up from the ground level uh, to an incline of a stone retaining wall. Now, the stone retaining wall was 12 to 15 feet high. It was six feet thick. On top of the stone wall, there was another wall that was 12 feet thick that was somewhere between 20 and 26 feet high. So altogether, the walls of Jericho, this system of walls, formed a fortification that was between 32 and 41 feet high. Now, when you get a chance sometime, just measure something that's 41 feet tall. 
and 12 feet thick. <laughs> the people of Jericho just laughed at anybody who was going to attack them. I read one source that said that the people in Jericho had hot oil pots on top of the walls so that if anyone tried to scale the walls, they would just turn boiling oil over on them. So nobody even tried to beat them. So here's Joshua as commander of the Lord's army. He's got to figure out how to do something that nobody else has ever figured out how to do. Does this resonate with any of you? How many of you right now have something before you in 2021 that there's no answer for? I mean, I know where some of you are right now. I mean, just in the, you have a job. You're trying to figure out how to do your job, but your kids are at home because of the shutdown, and you've got to figure out how to do your job and educate your kids at the same time. And that's just for one thing. How many of you have something that you have to answer for? You're on the spot. You're responsible for it. Nobody's been able to do this before. Nobody knows how to do it, but you're responsible to do it. So if that's where you are today, that's your first similarity with Joshua. Here's the second one. There's bad history. The last time they were at this spot, they choked at a moment of destiny. They wound up walking in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, put yourself in Joshua's place. You have to lead people who've never really been part of a battle. You have to lead people whose only history is bad history. You're going to do something that's never been done before, but there's bad history. You know, it's easy for us to tell this story, but it's important to remember that Joshua didn't have the book of Joshua. He didn't know what was going to happen here. God just said, you're, you're in charge. Be strong and be courageous. But if I'm Joshua, it's like, well, Moses was in charge, and he was strong, and he was courageous, and this whole thing blew up on him, and he couldn't make it happen. How am I supposed to be commander of the Lord's army when all we have is 40 years of bad history? Am I talking to anybody right now? You have a situation, if you could start from scratch, you might be able to pull this off. But you're not starting from scratch. You're starting coming out of a divorce. You're starting coming out of financial difficulty. You're starting with an emotional disorder, as I have. That's Joshua. He's got to figure out how to do something nobody knows how to do. He's never done it before. And then he's got bad history. Here's number three. Joshua had never been the one who had to come up with the plan before. There was a man with the plan, Moses, down in the corner office. <laughs> Joshua had not woke up in the morning thinking, okay, what are the Israelites going to do today? He had awoke in the morning, dressed, gone down to the corner office, and said to the greatest leader in all of history, what do you want to do today? Tell me what to do today. But now the man with the plan was dead. I know that some of you have never been there, but some of you have. I have. I don't know how much of the history I've shared with you about how I came to this church. I came here going on 36 years ago. I was 28 years old when I came here. The man who was our pastor before me had been a mentor of mine. He was a college professor. He was chairman of the faculty of the college that I went to. He had been a successful pastor in West Texas for many years. Then he came to be head of the faculty, and he was the head of the pastoral theology department of the college that I was in. And he just sort of, well, he, he knew me when I was 16, and 
It was a strange set of circumstances. I'll tell the story someday how Mary Alice and I met. We were just teenagers dating. And long story short, this man was preaching revival in the spring at a church that I was going to preach a revival for in the summer. And the worship leader was sick that night. And the pastor came to me and said, will you lead worship for this service where Dr. Johnson was preaching? I was on my way to a secular college. When I, before I heard him speak, and I told Mary Alice on the way home, I said, I want to go to the college where that man is. I didn't know that he went home and told his wife, Dorothy, I met the neatest young man tonight. I was 16. Graduated from college, went to Houston. Now he's up in years. He's taken this church in Kansas. And he started telling me, he said, um, Mark, I think you need to come be the next pastor. And, and it took me a couple of years to have the conversation with him. I kept putting him off. He, I loved him too much. I, I didn't want to tell him the no that I felt like telling him. But finally, I did come here. And long story short, for the first year or so that I was here, we were co-pastors together. And even though we had equal authority, I would walk to his office every morning. And I would ask him, what can I do for you? And he would say, well, what can I do for you? And I said, what can I do for you? I will never forget a memory that is one of the most painful memories I've ever had. I remember driving down Mount Vernon Street coming toward our old campus, and I saw them taking his name off the sign and putting my name up. For years, I would never look at my name on the sign. In fact, when we moved out here years later, I said, I don't want my, back in those days, there were people would put the pastor's name on the church sign. I said, I don't want my name on the sign because I never will forget what a painful thing it was for me to remember or realize that I couldn't go to the corner office anymore. And now my office was the corner office. And there are people here today who someone used to be your go-to person. It could be your dad, but your dad's not around anymore. Maybe your dad's in heaven. Or your mom. Or it just could be that the company that you work for has evolved to the place that the people who used to have the answers don't have the answers anymore. And the people that used to go to for answers are now coming to your office and asking you what we should do. I know what that's like. And that's where some of you are today, facing 2021. You have an impossible situation. There's bad history. You'd love to talk to someone who's got it figured out, but that office is dark now. I, I know this didn't probably happen literally, but in my mind, I see it. There, there's Joshua. He won't sit in Moses' office. He stays in his office. And finally, somebody that worked for him had scribbled a sign and put it on his door, the sign that just simply said, Commander of the Lord's Army. Number four, even his most trusted friend, Caleb. I mean, he had talked everything over with Caleb for 40 years at least. But when Joshua went to Caleb and said, Caleb, what do you think we ought to do about taking the city of Jericho? Caleb said, Joshua, we've never been here before. I've never been through anything like that before. You're going to have to get your answers from somebody higher than me. And I'll just give you the fifth thing, and maybe the fifth thing is the summation of all the others. It's the loneliness of destiny. Can I say that one more time? It's the loneliness of destiny. Here's the deal. If you've never been in charge, it looks like the coolest thing in the world to be in charge. It looks like people in charge can do anything they want to do. That's a person who's never been in charge. <laughs> 
Because when you're in charge, you, you, dis you, you discover the last thing you can do is anything you want to do. It's amazing how you can be hemmed in by circumstances and your choices get diminished. It's a lonely thing. It's a lonely thing to be sitting in the seat of destiny, your destiny and the destiny of others. Anyone feel like Joshua today looking at 2021, impossible situation, bad history? You can't find anyone to go to for answers. It's a lonely place. He's the commander of the Lord's army with no plan. He's got this enormous assignment and no ideas. That's when we get to our text. We get the sense from the text that Joshua's out kind of on a reconnaissance. He's out by himself. He's kind of on a walk, and he's thinking about, well, maybe we could do this, and maybe we could do that, and none of those ideas sound good. Now our scripture. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us? Are for our enemies. Now, we, we kind of know this is God or a representative of God. I'll talk about that in just a moment. So for those of us who were raised in America and we've been sort of trained to think that the world revolves around us, Okay, get this in your mind. Here's Joshua. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's very lonely. He's troubled. He, doesn't, he has no plan. He's facing a difficult and impossible situation. All of a sudden, here's this shining person standing with a sword drawn, and Joshua knows this is kind of a, it's either God or someone like God. And Joshua asks him, are you for us or against us? For all of us who've been trained to think like Americans, we're expecting God to say, oh, Joshua, I'm for you. I'm there for you. <laughs> I even hear people talk about God is there for you. That's not what, that's not what God said. I mean, Joshua said, are you, are, are you on our side or are you on the other side? And God says, neither. I'm not on your side. And I'm not on their side. Joshua, I didn't come to join your team. The question is, are you going to join my team? Someone asked Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the Civil War, Mr. President, do you believe that God is on our side? And Lincoln said, I'm not concerned about whether or not God is on our side. I'm concerned, are we on his side? And that's the problem with so many Christians today. They want God on their side. They want some mojo. They want God to bring some moxie, God to juice them up so that, you know, now they can do what they want to do with God's wind in their sails. That's how we've been trained to think. I mean, it is important for us to hear the word of God today. I mean, God loved Joshua. Joshua was his pick. It, Joshua was on God's mission. But God wanted Joshua to understand, Joshua, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take charge. Now, let's get down to who this person is that Joshua came across. I'm, I don't like to teach theology. For one thing, it's over my head. But let me do a little bit of it. There is something that we call in the Bible Christophanies. It means a visual manifestation of pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. According to John chapter 1, he created the world. Every once in a while in the Old Testament, he would just step onto the scene and show up. There was a time when three young men stood in the face of tyranny and said, we will not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And they said, if you don't bow, we're going to throw you into a furnace of fire. And they said, well, you do what you have to do. And they throw him into this furnace of fire that was so hot that it killed the soldiers who threw them in. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, looked down and said, didn't we, didn't we throw three men in the fire? He said, I see four, and they're walking around, and they don't have any, 
any harm. And that fourth one is different. Hmm. Every once in a while, Jesus just showed up. And this is who Joshua's meeting. It's not an angel because Joshua falls down and worships him, and the, angel, and the Lord doesn't stop him. Now, when people fell down to worship angels, angels would stop them and say, don't worship, worship God. This person took Joshua's worship. This is Jesus. Why does this matter to me today? You and I have already seen we have a lot in common with Joshua, right? We, we, we've been through the list. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus said, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I was telling Mary Alice, I was telling Mary Alice at breakfast, my favorite word out of that is even. Because the Lord was saying, listen, you're going to get toward the end and it's going to be really dark. Jesus said, don't worry about it, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you all the way till the trumpet sounds and I call you home. Now, I want you to think about Jesus' message to Joshua. Because Jesus said to Joshua, I am commander of the Lord's army. Now, a lot of our translations will say, as commander of the Lord's army, I am here. I am here as commander of the Lord's army. I was reading this in Hebrew, and it's kind of interesting because it's really two sentences. And I don't know if anybody will get this today like I get it. But if, I'll just say this in case somebody may really, really love this. What Jesus said was two sentences to Joshua. He said, first of all, I am commander of the Lord's army. And then he said, I am now here. It's that second one that I love very much. Joshua, I'm commander of the Lord's army, and I'm here now. Things are going to change. I'm here now. Thank God that Jesus is with us today. So how does Joshua take this? Because what does Joshua have printed on his business cards? I'm commander of the Lord's army. That's my job. I'm commander here. And this is the Lord's army, and I'm commander. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, I'm commander of the Lord's army. Well, I know how he took it, because in verse 14, it says he fell with his face to the ground in reverence, and, and he said, I am at your command. Joshua said, what do you want your servant to do? For every one of us who loves God, who are facing a very uncertain 2021, we need to look up and see Jesus by faith, and we need to say to him, I want to join your team. What do you want me to do? <laughs> I find this interesting. Joshua looked up, and then he fell down. He looked up in hope, and he fell down in worship. Now, this is beautiful. The commander of the Lord's army replied, okay, here's your first instruction. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. And I don't have time to teach this, but I'm going to try a little bit here. Take off your shoes. Well, what would this mean to Joshua? Well, again, he feels like a brand new leader and Moses is dead. But there was a moment, we talked about this a few moments ago, when Moses was being called, he looked at a burning bush and God spoke to him out of the burning bush. What did God say to Moses? Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. What was God saying to Joshua? Look, the same God that was with Moses is the same God that is with you. And today we need to hear that. We need to hear that God is saying to us, the same God that was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esther and Sarah and Mary, that same God. God is with you today. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. I don't mean take them off literally. Well, I'll teach on this someday. There's something beautiful about God saying to 
Joshua, take off your shoes. The holy ground there represents the presence of God. And God was saying to Joshua, listen, take your shoes off. I don't want anything between you and me. I don't even want shoe leather between you and me. You and I are together with this thing. I'm talking to somebody here today. You're trying to figure out how you're going to navigate an impossible marriage. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Nothing between you and your Savior. Some of you are trying to figure out how you're going to survive. God is saying, I don't want anything between you and me. Oh, can I teach a little more? I know I'm in overtime. Oh, this is so good. Do, do you know why people took off their shoes in worship? It's because the shoes would get dirty. Now, in the Bible, our, our daily life is typical of walking. And that, that's a metaphor that goes throughout the Bible. And as we walk through our daily lives, we pick up the dirt of this world. And, and God was saying to Moses and to Joshua, take off your shoes because you picked up some dirt walking around in this world. You need to clean your life up. If there's something that's not right, if there's thinking that's not right, if there's entertainment that's not right in your life, if there's, if there's language that's not right in your life, take off your sandals. They're dirty because God wants to be so close to you that there's nothing in between you and God so that he can do the stuff that only God can do in 2021. That was free. Other audience didn't get that. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is a terrible place for a chapter break between chapter 5 and chapter 6. God says to Joshua, okay, now here's the plan. Jesus said, here's what we're going to do here. And Joshua's all ears. How am I going to take this wall with all these, this city with all these walls? And the Lord said, okay, <clears throat> you're going to get the people together. You're going to walk around the city and the priests are going to blow their horn. What are we going to do after that? Go back to your tents. That's the plan? Okay, what am I going to do next? Day two. Get the people together, walk all the way around the city, have the priests blow the horns. And then what? Go back to your tents. Day three. Walk around the city. Blow the horn. Day four, day five, day six. God says, Jesus said, day seven's going to be a little different. What are we going to do? We're going to walk around the city. You're going to blow the horn. I thought it was going to be different. You're going to do it again. <laughs> You're going to do it again after that. You're going to walk around the city. Can you imagine what the people of Jericho were thinking up there with their hot oil? And the Lord said, when you get to that seventh time around the trip, I'm around the seventh trip around the walls, I'm going to tell you to Shout. And he said, when you do, the walls are going to fall in. Now, I love studying the archaeology here. Archaeologists believe that what happened was an earthquake. And we Wichitans know about that. <laughs> not, but not the kind of earthquakes we have. I mean, the walls fell in. I was in Israel last year. 3,400 years later, the people of God are still there in Israel. One postscript and I'm finished. If you go back to the early part of Joshua's life, he didn't start life with the name Joshua. He had a different name. His name was Hoshea. Hoshea means savior. It means superhero. How would you like to start life with the name superhero? I mean, <laughs> don't you know that was a crazy thing for Joshua in the first grade? You go to school in the first grade, and other kids ask you, what's your name? My name is superhero. Oh. Wow. Well, Who's your daddy? 
Oh, he's a slave. Tell me about your mama. She's a slave. What are you? I'm a slave. What's your name again? My name is Superhero. Don't you know that was a joke throughout his life? I mean, how do you? Superhero. So Joshua grows up and he goes to work with Moses and he's Moses' aide de camp and in and out he comes into Moses' tent every day and one day Moses takes his glasses off and, and, and looks up and says, uh, Hoshea, we're going to have to do something about that name of yours. And if you look way back in the history of Joshua, the Bible just simply says, Moses called Hoshea by another name. Moses called him Joshua. Joshua means God is my superhero. It was Hoshea, that superhero name's too big for you. We're going to call you, from now on, we're going to call you God is my superhero. I love being your pastor and I get to meet a lot of you. And I don't know what it is about New Spring, but a lot of you who come here are super achievers. It's almost sort of the, the norm here. I don't know, maybe it's why you pick a church. I don't know, you, you guys are just kind of like top producers. There can be a problem with that. Because after a while, you feel the pressure of being everybody's superhero. There are moms here, wives. You gotta be a wife and a mom. And you may have a challenging career. You may be trying to educate your kids right now. And that superhero name gets awfully big sometimes and awfully oppressive. There are guys here. And people say, well, if you, if you want something done, you have to get him to do it. Well, that's a nice thing to have said about you, but after a while, that superhero title can really weigh heavy on those shoulders. For all of you who feel the pressure to be a savior, I have two words for you today. Fire yourself. Go home and write yourself a pink slip. And fire yourself from the responsibility of having to be everybody's superhero. And you write a new job description that says, God is my superhero. I'm trusting him. Let go of the superhero title for 2021 and let Jesus wear it. And you'll be surprised to see what God does. Thank you for being here today. God bless you. Let's do this next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.